0: Welcome to Pacific Mammal Researchers Marine Mammal Highlight Series. We are a 501c3 Research and Education Nonprofit studying marine mammals in the Salish Sea off Washington State. In this series, you will learn about different marine mammals as we discuss interesting facts about each species. This is our way to geek out, share some information, and have some fun. We hope you enjoy the series and be sure to follow us on Instagram to vote for which animal we talk about next. And without further ado, Welcome to the Pac-Man podcast. Uh, I'm Cindy. And I'm Kat. And this week we're excited because we get to talk about our study animal of interest.
1: (laughs) Finally. (laughs) And it
0: it goes well because it piggybacks off of the uh, last week where we got to talk about a harbor porpoise paper, uh, our last episode. Um, So, but we, this wasn't just our choice um, even though it seemed like it might be because you know, it's our animal. But uh, we did put the poll up, it was against uh, the spotted dolphin, which is another uh, species that I've studied quite intensively uh, in my career. And so it was very interesting. It was quite quite close uh, for a while. I know,
1: it got closer. I was like, oh, it's a slam dunk, harbor porpoise. And then it was like, all of a sudden, those sneaky little votes started coming in.
0: It was like 14 to three, and we're like, wow, okay, I guess it's harbor porpoise. And then it was like, I think it was like 17 to 14 or something like that at the end. So um, thank you all for voting. And uh, thank you for choosing the harbor porpoise. Although. Spotted Dolphin would have been fun as well. <laughs> um, so we've t- you know, we've talked a little bit about the harbor porpoise already um, in some of the other papers that we've done. And we did do some um, episodes on uh, the papers that we've done. But we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about what we know about these guys. And um, so I'm going to start off. And you may be noticing, if you've a regular listener, that Trevor's not here. <laughs> Um, Trevor is super, super busy. Uh, he's out on the water almost every single day as a naturalist and uh, it's just, there's a lot going on. So he's taking a break for the month um, and he sh- I think he should be back next next time. So we're gonna fill in his shoes uh, and Kat and I will take over his sections.
1: Thankfully he left us with an easy one for us, so. Yes, yeah, so like, <laughs> thanks for
0: All right, Well, <laughs> we know a little bit about these guys, so. I mean, hopefully, hopefully. Oh, yeah, right? Well, we do and we don't, right? And we'll talk about that. <laughs> Good <laughs> point. Um, so I'm going to talk about the, uh, the, their parents first. Um, and so these guys are the second smallest cetacean in the world. The small, the only thing smaller is the vaquita and we should honestly do a, do one about the vaquitas.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, I think we did a part one before, but, um, yeah, there's very few animals left. It's one of the most endangered. I think it is the most endangered. I think uh, at this point. It is. Yeah, there's only about ten left in the world. Um, so anyway, that's the smallest cetacean, and the next up is harbor porpoise. So it, it there's a possibility that the harbor porpoise could become the smallest cetacean if if the vaquita don't make it. But we're hoping that doesn't happen. So they're small, so they're about five five and a half feet, uh, about 150 pounds, like 135 to 170 pounds. So I always kind of say it's like an average smaller human uh, size, but they are kind of short and squat. <laughs> So, as most porpoises are, they're not long and slender and svelte. Um, They are kind of more piggy.
1: <laughs> and I have ooh, put a pin in that. <laughs> Great, one, Great One leading.
0: of the one of the one of the names. Um, oh, we'll find out. Ooh. So the um, so they're 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 basically portly. Um, and the one thing about so the main difference between dolphins and porpoises, um, which will help us get a visual of these guys. So um, the main thing is that dolphins generally have a snout or a a rostrum or a beak, we call it, it's basically their mouth, Um, but porpoises don't. They have that more blunt face. Uh, If you think of a killer whale, which is actually a dolphin, (laughs) so one of the exceptions to the rules of a dolphin having a rostrum, but that kind of blunt face is what all porpoises have, uh, all the seven species that there are. So they have this blunt face, um, they have a smaller triangular dorsal fin, and it's more shark looking like than a curved falcate dorsal fin that you see in a dolphin. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then the other the other thing between dolphins and porpoises is that porpoises are generally a bit more solitary or smaller groups, and dolphins is, dolphin, dolphins dolphinses. Whoa, um, dolphinses.
1: <laughs> New plural, um, dolphins bl- dolphinses.
0: I like it though. Uh, they are found in larger groups and a bit more gregarious and social, but we're, again, put a pin in that because we're gonna talk about sociality with these guys and what we know. Um, so that's the main differences between dolphins and porpoises. So they got that blunt face, triangular fin. Those are gonna be the most obvious things that you're gonna see. Um, for harbor porpoises, they are um, kind of dark gray and maybe Kat's gonna talk about some of the other names that they're called <laughs> um, The uh, because they're dark and small, um, but they have kind of a darker gray on top uh, sometimes to a like a dark brown or it's kind of brown grayish depending on the animal um, and there can be we do see some variation in that of animals that are quite distinctly gray and some that are more kind of muddy um, and then they have kind of this along the lateral uh, line they have this it more, melds into being more white on the bottom so they have that counter shading which is uh, pretty typical um, but uh, not black and white like an orca or a doll's corpus so darker gray, lighter white, and then they have um, this little uh, stripe from the from the pec fin up to the mouth, which is like a little. T- and I think yeah. it's they also say it's like a chin chin strap. Um, I think like, well, that's the chin strap, but um, yeah, just underneath they have like a little bit darker coloration, kind of under mm-hmm. under the chin area. Um, and um, we'll talk about the. Um, well, I'll just talk about it now. So the, the, the that, that coloration pattern that's on the side um, that goes from the dark to the light uh, is actually distinctive per individual. And that's something that we've just kind of, well, no There's a paper many, many years ago that said, this is individually distinct <laughs> based on stranded animals, but they're so hard to take photographs of and they're so small and they seemingly don't have Markings like dolphins do, where they have the nicks and scars and the dorsal fin and stuff. Um, so nobody's really been like, you know what? I'm going to try to photo ID these porpoises. That's a great idea. <laughs> and also with old film, it would be it would be you couldn't do it. Um, right. The cost would be too much. You'd have to you know develop all that slide film, and then one out of every you know 50 might be usable. <laughs> so until the the advent of digital photography. And some crazy people like us that are are like, yeah, this is really hard. Let's go try <laughs> and do that. Uh, it's awesome. Um, so uh, we and another group in California in at Golden Gate, oh, um, um, they're now at the Marine Mammal Center, um, started doing photo ID on these animals, and that's what we use. We use that pigmentation pattern on the side, the scars uh, of the uh, that can unfortunately accumulate on individuals. Um, and then the shape and stuff of their dorsal fin, um, we also use those as indicators as well. So um, that is kind of a new thing that's in the research for harbor purposes is photo ID, which was not done before. And there's more groups now that are coming out and going, oh yeah, you know what, we can get with the zoom lenses, <laughs> we can get some good pictures of these guys and um, and be able to photo ID them. So um, so we can do that with the coloration patterns they have on the side of the animals along with their dorsal fin. Um, so. I think that's about it for their appearance. Um, yeah, I think so. They're, they're they're cute.
1: Yeah, I know that they're um, which I'll talk about in just a moment. Um, but actually, this kind of leads in nicely as I know that there are some phenotypic differences between the majority of harbor porpoises and the I think the specifically the Black Sea, um, harbor porpoises. Yeah, they they look a little bit different. I think they're a little darker, if I'm not mistaken. I think so,
0: um, and I think that's one where it's like a, a, you would be looking at the two compar- comparatively. You could see them more easily than if you would just look at it by itself. Sure. Yeah. Um, and there, it's there, kind of there is, there is. Females are slightly larger than males. Um, oh, a dark gray chin patch. That's what they called it.
1: There you go.
0: So there's the lines on the side, and then there are the little a little patch of dark on the chin. Um, but the females uh, are slightly larger than males. But again, that's like. Centennial in The averages, difference. right? <laughs> like It's like, okay, well, an average, these guys are like, you know, five inches bigger than those guys. So you would not be able to look in the water and go, that's a female, you right. know, like you can for like a California male sea lion. <laughs> well, that's a male, obviously. Um, so that's the
1: appearance. So yeah. now you're gonna have the distribution. Yeah. So let's talk about where we find these guys. Um, so harbor porpoises are found in northern temperate and subarctic waters. Um, they're also found in some Arctic coastal and offshore waters as well. So they do typically prefer the coastal areas, though. So hence the name harbor porpoise.
0: Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting. It's only recently that they found some weird guys that are like we're in the offshore in deep Atlantic waters.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, it's yeah, pretty unusual. Like
0: Twenty seventeen, I think, was the paper that that came out in. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, pretty interesting.
1: Mostly these guys, you're going to find them in like bays, estuaries, mm-hmm. harbors, fjords. Um, in things- a few miles from shore yeah and it's pretty much they seem to like depth of about uh less than 650 feet so it's, mm-hmm. it's very oddly quite specific um and then like <laughs> you said you do have these outliers who for some reason are going farther offshore possibly following the food um mm-hmm. so in the north atlantic sea we're talking basically they range from western greenland all the way across to north carolina on the u.s um east coast
0: yeah and it's interesting why I, I i yeah i saw that i was like what um, and I saw that it goes all the way to like basically the top of Florida, um, mm-hmm. you know. And and when I talked to some researchers over in North Carolina, they were like, basically, I think it was Cape Hatteras. Like they don't yeah. they don't come farther south than that. But even above that, like it's not very rare. It's not it's not very common to find. Right. Our so that, in yeah. more southern range.
1: This is the thing with ranges is like. Yeah technically they can be found there. It doesn't mean they're there frequently, right? right. So it's a little, can be a little misleading. Yeah. Um, and then they are also found from the Barents Sea down to West Africa as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the North Pacific, which is obviously the side that we're on here in Washington, they're found from, um, from Japan north up to the Chukchi uh, Sea, which I have a hard time saying, <laughs> and <laughs> from Central California all the way up to the, the Beaufort Sea or the Beaufort Sea yeah
0: and there's that um, that uh, will kind of will reference back to a bunch of the uh, another group which is that one marine mammal center in california in san francisco bay so that's one of the ones that's a very good population that is being studied so just yeah, yeah, yeah
1: for sure and these guys are not found in the southern hemisphere at all so they are specifically the northern hemisphere species i thought that was interesting because there are mm-hmm. usually
0: lots of times it's mirrored right you have them up there and you have them down here
1: yeah I don't, I don't know, why. that's a good, that's a good point. I know I was kind of expecting to like, oh, this is something that I probably didn't know. There is this random Southern po- right. hemisphere population. No, no, doesn't exist. <laughs> <just> up there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, they are, Harbor porpoises are split into several different stocks, what they call stocks like management mm-hmm. stocks um, based on their geographic locations. So for us here in doing our research in, in Northern Washington, our Harbor porpoises are considered part of the Washington inland water stock um which we'll refer back to a little bit later in the status section um but just to be aware of that's kind of how these guys are split into um kind of management units or in terms of referring to different populations they're all considered yeah, like different regions will have
0: different little stocks so if, if everywhere from california up to here there i think there's like six or stocks or something like that so it's like northern right. california and southern oregon
1: and then you know whatnot right so kind of how we delineate populations without being able to make a distinction between the species at all it's like okay it's all the same species but they're living in these different different areas
0: right and a lot of times that's based Um, on genetics usually mostly on genetics um and we'll talk about that in the behavior section as well
1: yeah genetics and geography basically which Mm -hmm. lead lead into each other right so that's pretty much the distribution section um so let's take a quick break maybe and then we'll get Mm -hmm. into the behavior and diet
0: And we're back. Hope you had a good break. We had a nice little uh, little chat in our during our break. Um, so now we're going to go into the diet and behavior. And so I'm going to put a asterisk on this um, because part of the reason why we're we're re- researching harbor porpoises is because we still don't know so we still don't know so much. <laughs> Um, I like to kind of say that, you know, where we were 30 years ago with dolphins is where we are now with porpoises, where people are starting to be be more interested in them. We have the ability to, um, listen to them and to, uh, observe them and take pictures of them and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so we still have a lot to learn about these guys, but we're learning some really interesting stuff that is shedding some light. And that's what we're really going to be talking about today. Um, so, and, and. Fair warning, there's going to be quite a bit of us in here because, <laughs> because obviously this is our main study animal.
1: Us being Pac-Man, by the right. way. <laughs> yes.
0: Um, so that's, you know, at Pacific Mammal Research here, it, we are, that our, that's our main study animal and along with harbor seals. Uh, and so we do, we have found out quite a bit in the last couple of years. And so we'll be chatting up our stuff as well. So, um, So for diet, uh, so these guys, uh, it's real interesting because they're, you know, they're along the coast so that you're not going to find them diving really super deep. Um, they feed on a lot of uh, different taxa, uh, different prey species. And, um, but there hasn't been a, a, really a whole lot of studies. I think there is just, you know, two studies that were here in the Salish Sea for our animals and what they eat. Um, and there's a few others from um, down in California, um, but they mainly eat, fish that are 30 centimeters or less right so not very big kind of foragey fish if you think of that type of fish or size um so and it kind of makes sense because they're small right (laughs) they're the second small
1: cetacean so they're not going to eat giant things and they're usually they're swallowing them whole typically so that's the other thing to remember here is they're not masticating their food like these porpoises are grabbing a fish and just swallowing it so
0: yeah, and you know, uh if I had it with me, the um, you know, their teeth are I, I knew their teeth are small, but like yeah, they're like uh, millimeters, less, like, like, like millimeters. Yeah, millimeters. Yeah. And sometimes only half of that tooth is above the gum line. <laughs> so it's like eh, you got a millimeter. So the, I mean, I thought they I knew they were small, but when I got them from the you know, stranding network for educational stuff, I was like, oh my god, this is ridiculously small. So they don't really have the ability to to rip prey like like, the, or, like orcas can or some other, other even uh, bottomless dolphins and stuff can. Um, so yeah, they are swallowing it whole. So again, that small fish are gonna be, makes sense. So there were um, the, the two, two main studies that were done. Um, Pacific herring is, is top on the list for both of them. Um, sardines are pretty, pretty common. Uh, walleye pollock and Pacific hake are also very high. Like the herring and hake uh, in our area are, are pretty, the, the big ones. Um, but they can eat sculpin. They can eat anchovies, perch. Uh, one had a lanternfish, which I thought was really cool. Uh, uh, Eucalan's plain, plain fin midshipman, black belly eel pout, uh, and that one's interesting because depending on the study that you looked at, um, and when they, what animals they were doing, and what season it was, eel pout was higher than in another season or something like that. So the the amount of these indivi- individual species. Can vary based on the season and their prey availability. You um, sand lance also important. Pacific sand lance, uh, rockfish, northern sculpin, sand dab, uh, the coxcomb, mussel worms. Which is probably just because it ate a fish that had a worm in it. <laughs> um, they do eat squid, um, and uh, they had their There's some family of crustaceans in there as well. But that's kind of like probably not very very. It's not very many of those, just it happens to be found when they did uh, the necropsies. Um, so they, they will eat squid and stuff like that, but mainly it's these, these, these smaller forage fish. So they will dive, um, they can dive for quite a few minutes, but usually their dive times are one to two, three minutes. You know, they're, they're pretty quick. They're not diving real deep because they're not in super deep water. Um, in our area, it's about a hundred-ish feet at the deepest part that they, and they forge there. Um, but the important thing to remember about these guys in diet is that they have a super high metabolism and they live in really cold waters. So what's interesting with them compared to other marine mammals um, is that they can't last as long without food. So, you know, gray whales or humpback whales, they can, they can last for quite a while without eating. Um, and even dolphins um, can last quite a bit of time. Um, But these guys, if they're already not doing well, they could die in as little as three days without food. So again, a a super healthy animal probably could last a little bit longer, but um, that's kind of like, you know, it's, it's that's really short time. (laughs) Yeah. Rain mammals.
1: And that's the thing. It's like a lot of that is normally conferred by your size, right? So the bigger you are, the more body fat you Reverse. can maintain, and then you have those reserves. Exactly. And mm-hmm. so these guys, you have the, the double whammy of the high metabolism and a small body size, so they can only carry so much blubber at one time and still move through the water. Exactly.
0: So, so they just don't have those stores to be able to use it longer. So they have to find consistent, reliable uh, food resources and prey to eat. Um, and on that with reproduction, harbor porpoises can, uh, depending on this, the area, the, um, the, the population, will reproduce every year or every other year. Their, um, their gestation is about 11 months. Um, they nurse for eight to 12 months. Um, they usually mate and give birth in the summer months. So between May and two, it is late to September depending on the area, but usually July, August, um, that time frame. So if you're a female harbor porpoise, you can be lactating and pregnant for most of your life. Right. They start reproducing at three to four because their lifespan, um, for what we know, again, we don't really know, uh, is anywhere from eight to 24 years, which is a big range. Okay. Um, kind
1: of a huge difference. <laughs> right.
0: So uh, they'd have found some obviously as old as 24, but they, you know, they, they say that it's more likely that 14, 15 is probably their, their age range, which is starkly different from 50 or more for most dolphin species. So they live life in the fast lane, as they say. So they start reproducing younger, because if you die younger, you got to start earlier. (laughs) So at three to four, they start reproducing. Females can be lactating and pregnant at the same time. The costs for lactation and pregnancy are intense, and especially lactation. Uh, It's the same thing for humans. Um, You need like 300 extra calories a day for a human for pregnancy, and you need like five or 600 for lactation. Um, So the females in particular, really need to find those resources consistently uh, and make sure that they can get the food that they need. So that bleeds into some of our behavior where the we what we found is that, you know, these animals generally 30 centimeters or less, that's the fish that they're eating. Well, we had a, a volunteer that was out taking photographs a couple years ago for us and she documented them coming up to the surface and had a really large fish in its jaws sideways. So again, as Kat said earlier, they eat their food whole. So the fact that they're carrying it sideways is weird in the first place. You, you can't really swallow that that way. Um, but what we ended up, and we, then we ended up d- uh, documenting that a couple more times. I'm like, this is really weird. I've not seen this before. Salmon is not part of their diet here as far as we knew from the, um, the diet studies. But lo and behold, we had some ichthyologists because we are not fish people. <laughs> take a look at the photographs we had, and they were like, "Yeah, that's it, that's pretty much going to be a salmon. There's really not much other thing it could be." And then one of the pictures, they were like, "Yeah, it's pretty sure it's pink." So, and these are like adult salmon, and it looks like you look at the pictures, and you're like, "You cannot fit that down your gullet. There's no way. You're <laughs> it's like half the size of you." Um, so, but they're catching it. Um, And so, so we documented that. And then we talked to our colleagues down in San Francisco Bay and they were like, yeah, we've documented them chasing after these big fish. And they have their, what we call their stationary drone, the Golden Gate Bridge, super awesome. So they can just stare down at them at the, and the below. And they were documenting them same thing going after these thing but they're american shad which is an invasive species that was introduced about 50 years ago or so
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and so but the same thing they capture it and they hold it sideways and then uh, eventually at some point they reorient it and then try to swallow it cuz we're like we didn't get to see that we don't see them ingesting it in either of our studies because they dive down and you can't see them but we're like it it, it was foraging behavior that's what they were doing so we were like, well, if they are trying to eat it, do they choke? Can you, can you choke on a fish that's too big for you to eat? So we looked uh, with our colleagues into the Stranding Network and we're like, yes, you can. <laughs> you, you can choke on very large fish. And we documented uh, over 25 um, in, in cases of this since the 1930s um and sometimes the fish is so big it goes all the way down to the stomach and the tail is still sticking out of the mouth
1: because again think about it like these animals are five and a half five feet long like this is not a long porpoise (laughs) and these american shad and salmon can get a couple feet long themselves right we're talking like big fish yeah
0: so what happens is that it goes down because their esophagus and their trachea are separate um so because they have the blowhole up here and they're eating hole over here. So when it goes in, it can dislodge the trachea, The the, the goose beak was called, that comes down to connect to the lungs. Um, and it basically dislodges that. And then they, they can't get it back out. And so then they suffocate and die. So what the really interesting thing was, cause we were talking about females and their needs for cost, you know, their needs for energy. And so we looked at, and for the ones that we knew the sex of, um over 92% of them were female. I think only like one was a male.
1: Yeah, it's like one male.
0: Yeah, and then like close to 87% were, were reproductively active. So it's really interesting because that goes to like if this is the if these animals are if if that life history, the pregnant or lactating females are the ones that are doing this, that are trying to do that risk and then maybe paying the price for it. Could that you know that'll affect the population differently than if it was males doing it because you just don't need as many males as you do females, so um, so that was just really interesting. You know, this one picture we're like, oh wow, well, that's okay. So now we know that at least on the Atlantic on the Pacific side they do attempt to eat salmon, uh, and we did find one that got caught in a net up in Alaska um, that had it in in its stomach, so it did eat it, um, and in the Atlantic. Salmon has been, some salmon, salmon, salmonoid species have been documented in their diet. Um, but again, not the big ones um, as far as we know. Um, and so, you know, that's something new and interesting that we didn't know. And we were trying to actually look at that and compare to, to the Atlantic side because American shad is native over there. And do they just not try to eat those guys because they're like, oh yeah, I know those guys aren't good to eat. <laughs> they might get stuck. Um, and that our guys over here haven't learned that yet because this is an invasive species. We right. don't know. Um, so um, that's their kind of eating and behavior. Um, they do need, I have saw a couple different places that it said they need up to 10% of their body weight a day uh, in food. So if Which would make sense. Are, yeah, if they're 170 pounds, then you have to eat 17 pounds of food. Mm-hmm. How many forage fish do you have to eat to make 17 pounds of food, right? So like, hundreds um so again and- that makes a
1: lot of sense where where you might want to try for a larger fish just to right. reduce that energetic amount exactly bang for your buck. i can see one of these versus chasing 500 fish that sounds yeah. great um
0: and we there are some other studies that have shown you know possibly continual feeding where they feed like just like all day because of the rates that they had for echolocation and there was some debate on on the uh, what surrounded that study and, and how they collected the data, but it does, it goes along with these guys need to eat a lot, how much they need to eat is debate. And then who they're eating changes, how much you need to eat, right? The fat content mm-hmm. and everything else in the different species will also play, play a role. So basically we know this, we just found out this, we still need to know so much more about <laughs> diet because we obviously don't know enough. <laughs> um, yes. so uh, on the other behaviors, we talked about reproduction, um, basically the uh, i'll go into the, kind of the social behavior we don't know um, <laughs> spoiler alert, <laughs> spoiler here we, alert. Go. We, we don't know nothing um, they um they generally are m- more shy in quote unquote uh they don't like boats in the way that dolphins or even other porpoises do they don't they don't really bow ride they don't really wake ride i'll put an asterisk on that Um, They don't approach boats like those other species do. They are more just like, I'm going to be over here doing my thing and you can just stay away and that'd be great. And so they are, have thought, because that, and also because they don't have whistles, at least that we know of, they don't have whistles um, that we know other species use to communicate with each other. They term them more asocial, right? They're, They're only found in groups of one to two, maybe three, up to 10, occasionally you'll see aggregations of 100 or 200 we still don't know why they do that maybe it's just a big party who knows Um, but they're smaller groups they don't seem to vocalize as much um, so they think they're kind of asocial but we found they do wake ride so we've seen that multiple times um, a year in our study site they just do it differently where the boat goes goes through and then as the wake is you know going they're like wee and they do it a couple times and then probably go back to feeding, which is what they're (laughs) needing to do most of the time. So they do. And I actually heard someone else on one of our uh, discussions uh, on Facebook with some other colleagues and stuff that they have seen a a Harbor purpose bow ride. I think Mm -hmm. I was like, Ooh, really? Right. That's crazy. Um, And, but so we do see them wake ride. We do see them leap out of the air. Um, It's not that common but we do and we have realized that that's mating behavior at least most of the time that we see them completely come aerial out and that's because we worked with our colleagues down in California and they have that great footage from that stationary drone they have um, of documenting that behavior and we've already talked about that in another podcast I believe but um, they are uh, they do come out of the water um, and uh, so a lot of the behavior that we say they don't do, I think is more because we haven't been out there to, to see it. And that's right. and it's maybe reasons. a little more
1: subtle too than we, had, right. you know, that we're used to with other cetacean species.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, so it was like, oh, they, they do this whole thing and it's obvious, you know, like, well, maybe it's not <laughs> right. I mean, they're when they leap out of the water, it's obvious. but
1: uh... <laughs> And on the social thing too, if you haven't listened to last, uh, last podcast, mm-hmm. Um, we actually, Cindy and I went through a new paper that was talking a little bit more about the social versus not social aspect of harbor porpoise, um, hunting strategies as well. So make sure to check that one out if you want more information on this kind of stuff. Yeah. And we'd mentioned in that one too, that there are some
0: vocalizations now that they've documented that were not used for echolocation and finding food. They were social clicks um, so again, it's these, I, I, they, they are social to some degree, what level they are compared to what we're, we're used to seeing with dolphins is a whole other story, but I, I don't think that they are asocial as they have been labeled for so long. It's just, we need to be out there to, to look at the, to look at it and see and know what's going on. Um, and that's why we're out there. And we've, again, we've been out there for seven years now. We've got, found out some pretty interesting information about these guys. So there's lots to be able to learn about them. Um, but I think that covers most of their behavior. We, we don't really know their social structure, um, because of, we just don't, their grouping pattern is, is different, I think, than dolphins.
1: Mm-hmm. So we, we're
0: still figuring that out. And by knowing the individuals, we can start to figure out, you know, Hey, does this guy come around with this guy all the time, or is it, you know, change or whatnot. And we don't know about their communities. So is, is the whole Salish Sea, let's see, for example, one big population? Or is it a bunch of smaller communities that interact with each other to some degree, but are may- basically self-contained? Um, and that would be important in what Kat is going to talk about in status and how we protect them. Because if they're smaller communities within a larger population, that you have to manage those differently than you would if it was just one big giant group of porpoises. Right. Um, yeah. So um, I think I think I didn't miss anything with behavior, did I? I think, I think that that's pretty much it. it.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I just want to I just want to really highlight again for people that like, look, a lot of, a lot of the reason we don't know this stuff about porpoises is like Cindy said, first of all, people aren't out there looking, but also a lot of the stuff you do need to be tracking individual animals to learn. Um, and really without using a physical tag, the only way that, you know, that we have to do that right now is photo ID. And so the fact that there have really been no photo ID studies until relatively recently is is another reason why this is a lot of information that we just don't have at this point. So. Yeah. Um, exciting I feel like you said it's it's there's a lot still to learn and you know having the technology now and having the the eyes out there on the water Mm -hmm. um we are we are rapidly learning a lot more but there's still just so much more we need to learn
0: I think they really encompass the enigmatic species yeah (laughs) they're just like we're gonna be over here and you can't see anything that we do yeah but it's really exciting if you catch us
1: (laughs) So speaking of which, um, let's get into the status part here. So harbor porpoises are considered a species of least concern um, for the most part. Their populations worldwide seem to be doing very well. Um, the frequent, most frequent number that I was, was seeing reported was approximately seven to eight hundred thousand harbor porpoises worldwide. OK, um, that number, I think, was a couple years old. So that might be a little bit of a different number, but somewhere in around that seven to eight hundred thousand, it seems to be a pretty good ballpark. Um, They are protected by the Marine Mammal Protection Act throughout their range and by the CITES Appendix 2 document as well.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, In our Washington inland water stock here, if you're wondering about our specific population that that we here at PacMAM study, um, that population was estimated at around about Mm 11,000 at last count. these numbers are going to be there are kind of ballpark numbers so mostly they're getting these numbers from what they call aerial counts so it's a snapshot in time when they literally take like photographs of images of uh, from a plane um and then they do fancy
0: math to figure out which ones they missed right because there's gonna be a certain
1: percentage
0: yeah it's it's magic math i mean it's real math but it's to me it's like "Eh,
1: eh, yeah it's It's amazing we're not statisticians. So no, 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 no. It's very but they,
0: Yeah, they, they make up for what they, they know that they're going to miss a certain amount based on dive times and just wave conditions and things like that. So they buffet all that in to get that, make that estimate.
1: Right, right, exactly. Um, so like I said, the majority of them are considered a species of least concern, except in the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea. Um, and these populations are listed as endangered and critically endangered respectively. So the Black Sea population is listed as endangered. The Baltic Sea uh, population is listed as critically endangered.
0: So um, the, the Baltic, I, I saw Baltic proper, and then there's Baltic. So is the, is the Baltic proper, like specifically that one section that is separate? Or like, I wasn't sure what terms the difference between- of a population? Between, yeah, I just heard, saw that term a couple of times where it was like, well, there's the Baltic Sea animals and then in the Baltic proper,
1: Oh interesting, sure.
0: I'm not I'm good not with sure. Geography, especially not European geography.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I'm not actually sure on that one. Um, I wonder if they they might maybe they're just in a specific part of the Baltic Sea. That's what I'm thinking
0: is that there's a yeah. certain part that they're um, there's like the critically endangered I said yeah like 500 animals left
1: mm-hmm. like that yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's pretty interesting. Like we already mentioned at the beginning, you know, there are phenotypic differences. So appearance differences, um, and there are also genetic differences between these animals. Um, what do you find?
0: Uh, I did, it says the Baltic proper subpopulation of the harbor porpoise was categorized as critically endangered on the, okay. the IUCN red list. So I think they have just like a, I think they separate the, the bulk that from the rest of the area around there. Okay. Um, the North Sea. Because it's all the like North Sea harbor purposes. And then they're like the Baltic proper ones over here that are like in the Baltic, right, right over here in this section.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and both of these, the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea, they're they're obviously they're they're open to I think they're both open to open water, but they're kind of more closed off.
0: So I thought so I know the, the Baltic definitely is because it looks like it, it's kind of like there is um it looks like it's closed off but if you like go in there is a little bit that goes to the sea that you can see but it is very very closed off yeah um it's like around denmark
1: right for the yeah, yeah for our, there's like for a little American there's listeners.
0: a little tiny pathway
1: <laughs> between some of the
0: islands there yeah. that you can get back out to the north sea um the the black sea though the black
1: sea is it's it open through Istanbul but it's like a tiny channel really yeah, so it's connected to, I believe, is it the Mediterranean?
0: Let me. Oh uh, yeah, the Mediterranean mine.
1: there. Okay, so I see Istanbul. It's connect- yeah, so it's Oh my God, to, you like, have to
0: zoom in so far to see that.
1: Yeah, because so I mean, to a tiny unless you get channel.
0: Yeah, unless you zoom in completely, it just looks like Istanbul is completely goes across. And
1: mm-hmm. so it makes sense as to why these populations versus other ones might be genetically isolated, right? So yes. you actually have a little bit more of that geographic isolation. Um. And it's thought that the Black Sea specifically, it's thought that that population became separated from other populations during the post-glacial warming of the Mediterranean Sea. Mm. It's quite interesting. And that population also specifically was hunted. So part of the reason that they're so in danger now is that they were hunted to near extinction in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was between the 30s up to the 1980s. So actually very, very recently. And it's resulted in around about a 90% population decline.
0: Oh, my God.
1: So you have this captive population in this sea that they can't, yeah, they really can't get, get out. out of. I mean, very easily. Right. Um, makes total sense. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize so, they were hunted. Mm-hmm. So that actually leads nicely into the threat section. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, dedicated hunting effort is, you know, historically has been a problem for for some populations. Not necessarily all, I don't think. But, again, these ones that are more contained right it makes sense that they they would be a source of food it's a and food a source, source for yeah. people um and the other main threat is um entanglement and bycatch and actually this is where i first heard about harbor porpoises mm-hmm. actually i grew yeah. up in, in scotland in the uk and bycatch is a huge problem especially off the south coast of england they're particularly susceptible to things like gill nets and trawling
0: mm-hmm.
1: um anything that has that large net that's going through the water column um and also a lot of those are are targeting those smaller forage fish that the porpoises are in and out trying to feed on um so that's really one of their main sources of mortality in today um is there's still huge rates of bycatch of harbor porpoises
0: yeah and and so that's an important difference between the U.S. and and Europe though because we don't really have that problem here anymore gill nets were banned at least in in most of the U.S. um there are some still uh, tribal fisheries that use them but that's part of the reason why we think the 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 porpoises came back in our area because the gillnets mm-hmm. were removed basically um but it's still a big problem over in europe and because the porpoise is their main cetacean species over there <laughs> that's everywhere yeah. um they still have quite a big a big problem with that mm-hmm. so populations um, are you know different the threats are going to be different depending on what's what population you're at
1: right exactly so this is again this is the slight danger of talking about overall numbers yeah. of a population yeah. a global population they're not they're not having the same experience.
0: <laughs> well, even within the North Sea, right? We do. Yeah. There's a paper that just came out about that, talking about the, porpoise, the harbor porpoise decline in the North Sea. But the North Sea is a very big space, and so they say like there's these some populations are going way down, these other ones are actually doing okay or possibly going up. And like why? Why are these ones doing not doing good? Why were those ones doing okay? And do they mix? You know, we don't know their migration. Some of them migrate offshore with seasonally. Um, other ones we don't know, you know, we don't know what happens here in the Salish Sea, if there's any kind of seasonal migration around the area, you know, that's important stuff to understand in order to figure out which animals are being, uh, have which threats that are more important for their population.
1: Yeah, and I think it's, what, I mean, the harbor porpoise in general is a great example of why fine-scale research is needed, because mm-hmm. there are so many differences with harbor porpoise populations when you look at the fine-scale information, like, oh, these guys like high tidal areas. These guys don't like these guys. Okay. You know, these guys forage all the time at night. These guys forage throughout the day. Like, it just they're they're very individualized or specific to the location that they're in. It seems. Um, yeah, and
0: on, and on that, like talking about the foraging, it's very common for those tidal those uh, tidal currents. So, where you have those rips currents going through that they use the the that barriers to catch the fish. So, it's very common in a lot of places. Um, and even in our area that is, but they don't have the same relationship with those currents that they do in other places like in Europe that they have researched, right? We didn't yeah. see a huge connection between tidal phase and and as they did. Um, and so there's, it, it depends on the, the topography of the ocean. It depends on the porpoises. It depends on the fish. It depends on that whole ecosystem or environmental variables there. Um, so that's an, an, an important one to to have that distinction.
1: Yeah, 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 it's very interesting. And when you do start diving into harbor porpoises specifically, you start to realize why that's so important. I think they're Mm -hmm. just a really great species to to model why that's so important.
0: Exactly.
1: Um, So pollution, obviously, like most marine mammals, that's another big problem for these guys. Um, They are typically found around coastal areas and harbors areas that have a lot of human activity. So they may be more inclined to get dosed with pollutants that are in the water, runoff from from towns, from cities, from harbors. Mm -hmm. Um, That can lead to disease susceptibility as well. Um, for sure, and that's a that's another issue for harbor porpoises. Um, one of our colleagues is is researching that in our area as well, looking at the disease occurrence and incidence in harbor porpoises in this area, and what how that's changing.
0: And there's that that new fungal disease that that popped up, and it was mo- found more often in harbor porpoises than it was in any other marine mammal species here. Even though they did find it in other ones, but they seem to be more susceptible, susceptible to it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then the other main threat for these guys, obviously, is just ocean noise. Um, in addition to shipping noise and boat noise, which is the usual ones that we talk about, um, the other thing for harbor porpoises to remember is that a lot of, um, with the onset of a lot of renewable energy sources, and this is especially a big thing in the UK right now and in Europe, where they are installing a lot more marine renewable energy sources. Um, what are the noise impacts of that on the harbor porpoise? Um, the use of pingers or seal seal scarers or seal deterrents on, you know, various fish pens and that type of thing that are like high pitched um, high pitched pingers, basically that are supposed to scare the seals away from these fish pens, that's right in the harbor porpoise vocalization range, which I'll talk about in just a second. So things like that, where just you know, when we're trying to make better decisions, we also have to look at how that impacts the animals in the environment that we are now choosing to impact in that different way. So. Right, and that, that
0: pile, like, construction, like, pile driving to create docks and things like that is also a big, a big issue.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so with that, let's get into some fun facts to wrap up here. Okay. So, first of all, we already talked about why they're called the harbor porpoise, specifically, right. but I did actually learn something on this one, because we're like, oh, okay, like, we're going to probably know a lot of this and, like, do all some right. fun research around the side, but this was actually really cool. We had some fun with this last night. So um then their latin name is Focina Focina the word Focina in latin actually means pig
0: okay that's what I thought I thought that was right right. yeah so
1: that's that's for all porpoises so I think all porpoises are (laughs) Focina something yeah
0: it's Focina 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 for the Atlantic it's Focina Focina vomarina for the Pacific and it's Focina Focina it's something else that I can't remember for the Baltic right yeah or the, no, the Black Sea, sorry, not the Baltic, the Black Sea. Black Sea, gotcha.
1: So yeah, so foscina itself actually means pig or pigfish. So when Cindy was talking earlier about how porpoises are sort of all generally like short and squat, um, apparently the, the people naming them back in the day thought so too. Um... And so porpoises are, harbour porpoises are often called puffing pigs, so it's kind of a combination of that name plus the sound they make when they surface to breathe. So it's actually very loud.
0: It's very loud, and sometimes you're like, whoa, there's like an orca here or something, and then you see this little like five foot harbour porpoise go bloop, and you're like, and remember when they're surfacing too, they're not like all splashy, they're just like. <laughs>
1: right. So the puffing pig is one fun colloquial name. Um, another one in Norway is nys, or Nisa, which is derived from the Old Norse word for sneeze which i thought was amazing <laughs> and i think i actually because i grew up on an island that's like relatively close to norway and i think i actually we call them nesics in shetland they're, they're the colloquial term is nesics and i'm like oh dude that's related it's to the norwegian name I had no idea sneezes that's adorable yeah. isn't that adorable i loved adorable. it i thought that was great Um, and then one of the other terms that you might hear is um, a lot of times fishermen will refer to them as blackfish in our specific area I'm not sure if that's generic or not but which is really confusing because everybody else
0: calls the orcas blackfish so when I first come up here I'm like okay you're talking about orcas like no we're talking about porpoises I'm like but you can't call
1: blackfish two different things right so let's talk about that for a second so this is a colloquial name that's termed because they are dark and small and you know they're around the fish there is actually a group of cetaceans that are generally known in the marine mammal fish. world as blackfish that includes orcas includes Good pilot orcas. whales false killer whales right you know so we're not talking about the scientific term blackfish we're talking about just like a local right term um so that's another fun which thing. is the reason why we have trouble
0: with colloquial and local terms because they can be very confusing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, so, and like I mentioned just a moment ago with the pingers, so the Mm. porpoises um, vocalize in the ultrasonic range, which means that as people, we typically can't hear their vocalizations in our normal hearing range, which is why we haven't been able to know much about their communication
0: at all because we couldn't even record it or hear it until recently. So, uh, so,
1: I mean, like Cindy said, for, for decades, they thought that the porpoises were just like, wow, these guys are crazy. (laughs) They're not making any sound at all. This is Mm. bizarre. And then when our technology caught up, we're like, oh, no, they are. We just couldn't hear it. Right. Um, and it is thought that one of the reasons perhaps for that ultrasonic vocalization range is that they are a small cetacean. So they are at risk of predation by things like orcas. Um, and so that their harbor porpoise vocalization range is at the very top end of the orcas hearing range. So it's likely that that evolved, co-evolved with predation attempts um, to try to have a way to still communicate potentially without your predator hearing without being like hey i'm over here come eat me (laughs) exactly exactly um and on that note we actually have a passive acoustic device out right now currently um and one of the aims of that is to hopefully record some harbor porpoise vocalizations on there because it is a high frequency recorder so
0: we're very excited we're gonna pick that up next week so we'll see if we got anything
1: yeah, stay tuned for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually again, one I thought would be fun to finish on is porpoises are actually extremely intelligent. So they do mm-hmm. have some harbor porpoises in captivity. And yeah, they, they, they don't Yeah, they, they
0: tend to not live as as well as I like, bought like, like that. The reason why bottomless dolphins are there and everywhere is because they're hardy and they survive. Yeah. <laughs> but so they don't you tend to, but there are like you said, have been a few that have survived long enough to get some interesting information.
1: Yeah. And so I mean they have found that like they'll they'll Be able to be trained very easily they can follow Mm -hmm. like multiple different commands um, and follow a set of instructions and then you know retain that information do various different tricks so it's again it's kind of interesting where so often they're sort of passed over as like the ugly cousin to dolphins and it's Mm -hmm. like there's so much pun but there's so much under the surface there you know (laughs) where it's like see what i do um But it's just fascinating. I thought that was a really nice one to end on where there, you know, there's a lot more to the harbor porpoise than we thought for so many, so many years. Well, and
0: it's kind of ironic for me to have ended up studying harbor porpoises because back, you know, I used to, I studied spotted dolphins and bottlenose dolphins at my previous research group with the Wild Dolphin Project. And um, I would, my thing was there's a difference between dolphins and porpoises it's always been my thing of like making sure people understand that even my instructor from my marine mammal class who was old school and kept calling it the baldnose porpoise which is
1: not correct because the collective name for dolphins used to be porpoise just
0: right so they use that. that and and so that's totally fine that was but now you're a marine mammal teacher you need to step up with the game of like where the language is at now um, but that there is a difference between dolphins and porpoises. And what i thinking back now, I think is funny is that I did kind of put the porpoises as like, well, no dolphins and porpoises are different. Dolphin porpoises are just, you know, those guys over there that are like, whatever, they're more like, ugh, whatever. And I, that's the kind of thought I had about it. Um, and then now, you know, fast forward 20 years <laughs> and now, you know, I, we, I did my research on the dolphins and we ended up coming out here and then realizing how much more to them there is. And they are intelligent and they are, they are cousins to the dolphins. They're not the, you know, just these little guys over here that don't mean anything. They are, so they do have some sociality. They do, they are intelligent and we just haven't bothered to pay attention until recently.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's why we're here. <laughs> exactly. So if you are interested in learning more about what we do, we don't really talk a ton about our work specifically on this podcast, cause we want to keep it more broadly educational about a lot of different things but if you are interested make sure to check out our website which is Mm -hmm. Mm www.pacmam.org not the fun game um (laughs) and check out our social media which is all just at pacific mammal research um so Mm -hmm. we're on instagram and facebook and obviously hopefully you're listening to this podcast so that's a great Mm -hmm. start
0: (laughs) and we have our youtube YouTube channel that has quite a bit of, of the of these um podcasts as well as some other educational content, and we are continually trying to put more and more on there for everybody to um, to learn from.
1: Yeah, and we have a, um, on our website we also do have a section for a gift shop. Um, so if you want to purchase any fun goods from there, or if you want to continue to support our work, learning more about this animal, um, hopefully this podcast has inspired you as to why that's so important. So um, feel free to check out the donate page on our website as well. Exactly.
0: Um, all right. Well, the harbor porpoise, so yay, harbor porpoises. We are the, the harbor porpoise supporters and are going to raise awareness of these super cute, super awesome animals that we need to learn more about. Um, so make sure that you keep an eye out for the next uh, next month. Usually the towards the end to the beginning of the month. Um, every other episode, we do a marine mammal highlight and um, you get to choose which one we do. So it should be the spotted dolphin against somebody else this time. So we'll see mm-hmm. who wins that battle royale uh, and uh, next week i think we'll probably do a general review but i think in the near future in kind of uh, i think september ish we're going to start having some interviews with some um some of our colleagues here uh which is going to be really exciting so keep an eye out for that um but that's it for us so we will uh, see you next time bye, bye. This was brought to you by Pacific Mammal Research, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. To learn more about the species we discuss, check out our blog. Head to our website, www.pacmam.org, that's P-A-C-M-A-M.org, to check it out. Also, help us continue providing fun and educational content like this by donating today. Your help is how we can continue to do our work and share it with you. Thanks.